0: So I don't usually do this in sermons, but I have, to, um, I have to start on a note of confession, on a note of confession. And that is that um, on the morning of April 29th, 2011, I, of my own volition, woke up at 4 a.m. to watch the royal wedding. Um, I'm not proud of it, and I'm, I'm not going to go into the circumstances under which this happened. Uh, you can, I'll just leave that for you all to speculate. But I got up, and I watched the royal wedding with all of the fanfare. And if you're coming in here, and you're new to the Anglican church, and you're a little creeped out by the liturgy and the musty red carpet, just watch the royal wedding. You have no idea. So uh, Prince William and I think his wife was Kate Middleton, right? Or is that, am I getting them mixed up? I'm looking to some of the people in the congregation. Like, Tammy Fire's like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, they had their first child then, two years later. On 22nd of July, 2013, Prince George of Cambridge was born. He was the third in line of succession to the royal throne. And on the day of his birth, there were 21 gun salutes. Uh, issued from Bermuda to New Zealand, all over the world. Uh, Bells rang in Westminster Abbey. Skyscrapers in London were lit up blue. You know how, like, on the 4th of July here, they make them red, white, and blue in downtown Pittsburgh? They were all blue for the birth of this one guy. Commemorative coins were issued in England and in Canada, a first for a royal. Um, it was a big deal, lots of pomp and lots of circumstance. And it made me think, it's just such a weird juxtaposition and contrast when we think about Jesus' birth, isn't it? Our text this morning also commemorates a royal birth. Uh, but it's a very different feel, isn't it? It's a, it's a teenager who everyone suspects to be pregnant out of wedlock, on a long journey, probably riding on a donkey to get to a town that she's never been to, where she can't find a room with any kind of privacy to give birth. And the baby is put into a feeding trough because there's nowhere else to set the baby. It's less glamorous than my own birth, than my own son's births. Early in Luke's gospel, we find this story, chapter 2. We haven't even heard Jesus speak yet. We haven't heard any of his teachings, seen any of his miracles, nothing. But already, I want to say that we get this little snapshot of his character. And this is just going to keep on uh, spiraling. We're going to see more and more of it. Those of you who are parents, you know your kids, right? And you can look back to the earliest years and you can see those threads and traces of who they are, what uniquely makes them, them, and how that was present almost at the very beginning. So it is with Jesus at his birth. So I want to reflect on the paradoxical character of Jesus this morning. That he's, the, on the one hand, he's the high king, but he's also a lowly king. And I want to reflect on that paradoxical character because it means something magnificent for you and for me. So first, Jesus is the high king. Who here has ever read or seen Narnia? The Chronicles of Narnia, yeah? Not as much as I'm expecting. All right, yeah, everybody's, you guys are on it. Uh, it's this story by C.S. Lewis about all these kids that go over into this imaginary world called Narnia. And the one, the oldest of the four, Peter is called the high king of Narnia at the end. Uh, The four of them are all kings and queens of Narnia. But Peter is the high king of Narnia. And what does that mean? That means that uh, even though Edmund might be a king, even though Lucy is a queen, who's in charge? Peter. Peter's the guy who ultimately calls the shots. He's the king above all the other kings. And so it is uh, with Jesus in the gospel. That's what Luke is trying to say. He's deliberately setting Jesus' kingship over and against the kingship of another person who's mentioned at the beginning of our passage. Who is that? Caesar Augustus, right? Our text makes it clear that this isn't just any birth. This is a royal birth. Uh, Look with me at verse 4. And as I read, pay special attention to this king's lineage and to the place of his birth. All right, verse 4. Joseph also, because of this um, Roman census, went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, that's in the north of Palestine, went up to Judea, which is actually in the central or south area of Palestine, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. It says that he went up because uh, Galilee and Nazareth is at about 1,000 feet above sea level, and Bethlehem is at about 2,500 feet. And there were actually Psalms written in which about ascending up to the region near and around Jerusalem Uh, it was seen as a place of going up you go up to the holy city and there you meet with God and Bethlehem was near Jerusalem so Joseph's going up to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David and presumably the census required that each go to their own hometown it might have been a Jewish thing The scholars aren't entirely sure. But we know two things already. One, what's his lineage? David. What place is he born? Bethlehem. And Why is this so important, I want to ask? Well, David, if you remember, is the first real king of Israel. There was a guy technically who was king before him named Saul, but it didn't work out so hot with him. And so David was put in place as the first real king of Israel. Uh, And he, in many ways, is the template throughout the Hebrew Scriptures of what a true king should be. That above all else, he was a person who was after God's own heart. It's under David that Israel went from being this kind of scattered amalgam of tribes uh, throughout this region to being an actual, almost like a nation state. And... uh, the Bible stresses this point, um, that David was lowly. David was a shepherd boy. He was the smallest of eight brothers, and he lived in this tiny podunk town called the House of Bread. Beit lachem. Say that with me. Beit lachem. you got to get the guttural. Lachem. Yeah, there you go. Beit lachem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Um, David was an unlikely choice to be king, coming from a very unlikely, one-stop-light, maybe, maybe no-stop-light, blink-and-you-miss-it kind of town uh, called Bethlehem, but he was the person who God chose, and this was the city that God chose to send his king from, and God made this extraordinary promise to David, uh, and that is that his royal line would last forever. No other king has ever received such a promise that his royal line would last forever. Second Samuel seven sixteen, the Lord says to David, your house, that means your family, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, your kingdom, shall be established forever. So you have lowly origins for this king, and then you have a promise that this king's house, his lineage... Shall be made sure how long? Forever. Forever. And in the following generations, David's descendants uh, didn't do so hot. They kind of went the way of Saul, right? Even though this great promise was there, did they live up to it? No. Uh, They abandoned the Lord, they abandoned the ways of justice. The rich exploited the poor, they went after other gods they did all kinds of corrupt practices, they sacrificed their own children, they destroyed their own kingdom. And before long, God's promise to David seemed like a pipe dream. Israel was sitting away in exile in Babylon. The king had been put in prison. All of his sons had been slaughtered before his very eyes by the Babylonians. And it seemed that the Davidic line was dead. The Davidic promise was left unfulfilled. Um, But the prophets, even at this time, foretold that another king would come. Another king would come from David's line, from Bethlehem, who would reign and rule forever. And what's more, he would come from the smallest town, from the smallest place. God has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Starting with the smallest little seeds, he brings in a good thing and you think it's insignificant but in the end it turns out to be the most significant thing of all it seems to be one of the patterns that he likes to employ so jump back to jesus's birth when we hear that this child is born in bethlehem does that mean something yes and he's of the house of lin- and lineage of David. That tells us that this isn't just any baby. This is royalty. This could pen- potentially be the high king. And as we read through the Gospels, we discover that he, in fact, is. He is the high king. The scriptures are very clear that Jesus isn't just one king in a line of kings. He's the high king whose rule has been vindicated by his resurrection and then it's been universalized by his ascension. I'll say that again. His kingship has been vindicated by his resurrection and universalized by his ascension. He went to the right hand of God, which is the throne room of the world. So the Bible teaches and Christians believe that right now, you and me live under the reign and kingship of Jesus of Nazareth. That's, that's the claim. That's the fundamental, irreversible, factual claim that is being made. Um, To be a Christian means to accept that, that Jesus is the king right now, right here. You cannot be a Christian without accepting that fact. So, um, if you can see it, our text this morning is really ironic. We have this decree from Caesar Augustus, who's the sole leader of the empire. They called it the Imperium Sine fine. Let's say that again for fun. Imperium sine fine. Excellent. Uh, It means the empire without end. From sea to shining sea, right? Caesar ruled it all. Uh, But Caesar's not the real king in this, is he? The real king is being born in this tiny corner of the world, of one of Caesar's provinces, in this tiny house to an unwed mother in a feeding trough. Um, But he will sit on the throne forever and ever. That's the claim. Um, For some, the real meaning of Christmas is very threatening, actually. If you're like Caesar, Augustus, then the, the claim of Christmas is very threatening. If you're like Herod, the claim of Christmas is very, very threatening because it means that there's someone else sitting on the throne. And so you have to get off. Christmas isn't always, doesn't always feel like good news um, to really successful people. Uh, to people who have all of their ducks in a row, or at least think that they do, Christmas doesn't really feel that great. I mean, we can even feel this viscerally, right? When you can buy anything that you want, what's another present? But when you're really in need, the fact that there's a king who's righteous and good is good news. Ultimately, in the end, we all need to have the true king on the true throne. We all need that desperately because we are, even if we seem like we have everything in order, fundamentally incapable of managing our lives in a way that brings truth and healing and wholeness and integrity. We all stumble in a lot of ways, don't we? Amen? Um. If you're like me, uh, you've struggled throughout various points in your life with having issues with authority, right? Uh, we all navigate this with varying degrees of subtlety. I see the Fire Brothers like Mark's giving you the eye. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, I, I just can't help but call you out in the middle of the sermon sometimes. Um, but we have various issues with authority, right? Um I, I always want to find a way to get around it. Um, I see the authority as an imposition upon me. And I often see this, too, that as the pomp and circumstance is, increases, what happens? Does the king become more attached to the needs of the poor or more detached? Detached, right? It, they become detached from what's really going on. So in many ways, for every good king... We can think of seven tyrants, right? Um, And we have good reasons for not trusting authority. But I do want to say that this king is different. This king is lowly. Jesus, the high king, is lowly. I want to draw your attention to three details in our text that establish that fact, uh, that Jesus, the king, is lowly. First, Jesus was born as an imperial subject. His parents traveled to Bethlehem. Why? Because they felt like it? No. Because the Roman Empire said they have to register there. You have to go there to pay your taxes or be conscripted as a soldier. Right? Uh, Jesus paid taxes to the empire himself. We see that in scripture. And in the end, he was murdered by the empire. Uh, Our Lord knows what it means to suffer under tyranny. Jesus, the high king, knows what it feels like, to the fullest extent, to be a victim, to be misunderstood, to be thrown into the machinations of some kind of bureaucracy that doesn't understand you and doesn't care about you. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer under law. Jesus knows what it's like to be imprisoned wrongly. Jesus knows all of that. He knows it all. Second, Jesus was born homeless. Uh, Mary traveled 90 miles. That's just one way to get to Bethlehem. Now, maybe she walked. She was about nine months pregnant, most likely. Maybe she rode a donkey. Who here would like to ride a donkey 90 miles? Really comfortable, right? Who here would like to do that in their third trimester? Um, I just know for a fact, if I told my wife at 37 weeks pregnant that we were going on a 90-mile backpacking adventure, but it's okay, you can ride a donkey, (laughs) I would just like, here's my immediate reaction. (laughs) Duck and run. Something is going to go flying through the air. Some kind of knick-knack is going to be thrown at me. Uh, But because Mary and Joseph were imperial subjects, they had no choice. So Jesus the king was born far from home in the middle of an extended road trip. And the Bible doesn't actually say anything about Jesus being born in a stable. Uh, That's an inference that a lot of Christians have made from the presence of a manger or feeding trough there. Uh, There is a tradition going back to about 155 AD, that's about 120 years after Jesus' death, that says that that he was born in a cave, Um, but that's not scripture, that's just a guess that some people have had from a very early time. Uh, We do know, though, two things for sure. One, there's no guest room for them to stay in, so no privacy for this poor woman as she is giving birth. And then two, the best that they could do for a bed was a feeding trough. This is far from the fanfare of Prince George, is it not? Even at his birth, we see this pattern. God sends his son into the world but the world doesn't have room for him. Often our hearts don't have room for him. As John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. It's a lowly birth for a high king. And this is in keeping with the rest of Jesus' life and ministry. He was born without a home, he lived without a home, and he died without a home. Luke 9 58, Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He was homeless. He lived a hard life. He was homeless his whole life. It's something that most of us do not share in common with, with him. Um, and maybe as a result of this, maybe, maybe as a reason for this, I don't know. He was humble and lowly in character. There's one place in the Gospels where Jesus describes his own personal disposition. Did you know that? There's one place where he says, "This is what I'm like." It's Matthew eleven twenty-eight to twenty-nine, and this is what he says. This is how he describes himself. Imagine how would you describe yourself when you meet, when you're uh, to the people that you love most, to someone who's wanting to get to know you? You would say, "I'm impressive." I'm strong. I've got real grit and tenacity. I'm a righteous person. I am almighty God. No. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For, this is what I'm like, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. He's lowly. His whole pattern of life is an inverse of this whole rags to riches story. He's not climbing the ladder. He's descending the ladder. He starts exalted. He becomes lowly. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about God's descent in our world. His his taking on increasing levels of humiliation for our sake. No other God is like that. Paul says this. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the most shameful death of all, death on a cross. That's the character of Christ. That's what he's like. You want to get to know him? He's humble. He's meek. He puts his own needs behind yours and mine. And that makes all the difference. Think about this. The holidays can often be a really stressful time. Anytime you put a lot of human beings uh, together, it can be a really stressful thing. Because everyone, we all have a certain insecurity that we bring to the table, and we all have a certain uh, very subtle way of trying to, to get something from the interaction, to fill that void in our own selves. But we've all maybe experienced this, um, I don't know actually if you have, but we encounter people occasionally who are overflowing, and, and they're just giving of themselves, and to encounter a person like that who is eminently accessible, eminently overflowing and abundant, it changes you, doesn't it? The scholar named Dane Ortland writes this. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, for all his supreme uniqueness and otherness, which is all true of him, he's the high king, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. So here's the paradox. Uh, we have a high king who's worthy of your worship, who deserves to get to call the shots in your life and in my life. To be a Christian is to surrender your own autonomy, it means to follow Jesus, it means that you no longer direct your own course. That's true. But the one who we follow is lowly. He's the father who invites you up onto his knee. Who delights and smiles at you. You can actually approach him. That's the kind of king that we worship as, at Christmas. That's the kind of king who Jesus is. Amen. 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 Amen.